This is Robin Williams on RN, Radio 2, 2FC. And no, I wasn't here a hundred years ago, but in 1972 and three on, as a revolution in broadcasting was underway, both in Australia and cosmically. We start with a programme called It's Only Human Nature that went from seven after the news on Sunday evening to 11pm. Here's how it began. Sunday Night Radio 2. Good evening, I'm Margaret Throsby. It is universally acknowledged that there's a great uniformity among the actions of men in all nations and ages, and that human nature remains still the same in its principles and operations. The same motives always produce the same actions. The same events follow from the same causes. Ambition, avarice, self-love, vanity, friendship, generosity, public spirit. These passions have been, since the beginning of the world, and still are, the source of all the actions and enterprises which have ever been observed among mankind. It's only human nature. The quotation from David Hume, the 18th century philosopher, sums up the general view that human nature is something rigid and determined. But then there are many versions of what this human nature is like. According to Plato, we have a body and a soul. The body dies, but the soul is everlasting. The Christian church sees humans as a little lower than the angels, made in the image of God. Sigmund Freud gave us drives and an unconscious, an id, an ego and a superego that makes us what we are, a product of a childhood history wrought with anal perils and phallic pitfalls. Sartre says we're free. Conrad Lorenz, that we're superior monkeys. Whoever's right, it's theories like these that shape the world we live in. So we shall hear from some of those whose ideas on human nature have been most influential in recent times, scientists with quite differing conceptions of the human lot. And our first guest back in 1975 was Colin Turnbull, an anthropologist now dead. He'd gone to Africa to see a tribe whose lands had been taken from them and whose life was entirely disrupted. The Eek were described in a book called The Mountain People and then even in a play. The story was compelling. My first reaction was to the countryside before I saw the people and it is spectacular. You, know, you drive up from Kampala down in central Uganda through the rather barren Karamoja plains where the cattle herders are. These very, very flat plains dotted with little island-like mountains and then up in the north you see this enormous range of very jagged mountains and that's where the Eek live, and it's very spectacular. And as you get up there, it becomes even more spectacular because they're pitted by all sorts of ravines. Some of them drop down or sheer 1,500 feet. And then this is all perched on top of the escarpment that divides Uganda from Kenya, which is about a 2,000-foot sheer drop. The views were so spectacular, I rather ignored the essential, and that is it is incredibly barren, arid country. 
but I certainly was not prepared for the degree of social degeneration I found. What, in effect, has degenerated is social structure. Their subsistence problem, the most basic needs of survival, food and water, is that they have to go off on their own, and this means that they effectively cannot care for anyone else. The only thing that effectively they can care for is their own survival. They know that it is dysfunctional. It would be inviting disaster to even go out in pairs, let alone in larger groups. And as every day they are in this way driven out in this individual food quest, it means that emotionally they also have to isolate themselves from each other. Now, love originates, first of all, in the one-to-one -one relationship between a mother and her child. And one of the things that horrified me, first of all, amongst the Eek, was the apparent, and I stress this term, the apparent brutality of mothers towards their children. Well, the writer Colin Turnbull, the late writer... And that was a programme we broadcast on what was called Sunday Night Radio 2. With me is Malcolm Long, who was here in the ABC when I first joined, way back in early 1972. You were a broadcaster and also a producer and ended up as the Deputy Managing Director of the ABC and then Head of SBS. That programme was one part of the revolution in 2FC Radio 2 and... It was a four-hour-long program. How did we know that the audience would put up with something, especially on a Sunday evening, lasting four hours? Well, Sunday Night Radio 2 was the first example of what RAM, this group of young producers and broadcasters, wanted to do. They came into the ABC around 1970, and they discovered that in radio, not a lot had changed for a very long time. They looked across the harbour to ABC television and there was Four Corners, there was TDT, there was Checkerboard, some exciting new dramas, there was some comedy, Artie Jack. Radio was much more staid in its kind of middle age. And a lot of the people who came into the ABC at that time, including myself, thought that really we needed to change. These were people who had been to university, often for the first time, and they saw the specialist ABC output on Radio 2, as they'd called, as being a great place for ideas. And so to push things along a bit, we formed a group called RAM, Radio Action Movement, whose objectives were really threefold. To look at the way radio was actually manufactured, and don't forget the ABC being the first service in radio, a lot of the production practices, the procedures, went right back to the 30s. Yes, in fact, the editors, I do my own editing now and have done for years, but when we first did it, it was in the corner out of the way secretly because the technicians belonged to the Postmaster General's department in a different organisation. And similarly, we producers couldn't go to air. We had to have an announcer there. It was strange. Well, that's the way it was, and they hired us and they didn't know what was going to happen. And they sometimes were quietly glad, I think, that someone that was rattling the chain a little, to change production processes so that individuals could be multi-skilled and they, like you, Robin, knew how to edit, how to produce, how to write a script and how to present and even sound pretty good doing it. Talking about sounding, by the way, everyone sounded like a pom or like, frankly, Prince Andrew. Well, that was the other thing that was leaking away pretty radically at that time. The ABC was built and reflected Britishness. 
By 1970, Britain had faded. America was much more in focus. But an Australian kind of cultural reality and identity was developing. And so there was a need to have that reflected on radio. And the second thing we wanted to do was to look at content, what was relevant in this post-countercultural or Vietnam War and new global reality about issues like environmentalism, Indigenous issues, women's rights. In 1970, these were new and strange and sometimes frightening ideas. They weren't being reflected much on radio. And the third thing was to look at the way serious radio was delivered across Australia on Radio 2. It was a challenge. There was a light service, Radio 1, the local service. There was a national service, which was serious radio, 50% music and 50% talk. So they were the things we talked about in RAM, about changing. And then, to give them their due, Richard Connolly and his team in Radio Drama and Features were the first ones to step out and create a program which broke all the rules, made by the people who presented it, ran for three or four hours, was demanding in parts beyond the sort of stuff that the old radio would necessarily have considered to be accessible, but Australia had changed. In 1950, there were 30,000 enrolments in Australian universities. In 1970, there were 300,000. Incredible, isn't it? Let's listen to a little more of that. It's only human nature. Four hours long, as we said, and listen also perhaps for the sort of things you're not really comfortable saying today, especially with Margaret Mead saying something rather extraordinary. Next, the most famous anthropologist of the 20th century, Margaret Mead. There are great many varieties of a basic human nature. Any society that has any size at all, one will find virtually every variation of temperament, and by temperament I mean inborn traits that are found in any other society. But which will be regarded as good and which will be regarded as bad varies from one society to another. So what determines which of these human natures becomes manifest? History, the experience of any human group, and that includes whether they've moved from one environment to another, who their neighbours are, so that the total environment, the ecology, the kind of food, the frequency of disasters, and the accidents of history, who lives and who dies, because in very small societies, the death of two or three people may alter the entire society. Would you be able to say that there's any basic minimum in the sense of a moral code or whatever, that is universal in the family or in relationships between a man and a woman in all the peoples that you've looked at? Well, I think you have to start with the fact as whether there's a basic ethical minimum or not. Now, what is right and what is wrong varies enormously. But the belief that there is a right and there is a wrong and that you can tell children so, this we will die for, this we will not, is universal. Now, if you then go a little bit further and say, are there any universals at all where we can find the same content within an ethical code? There are few. Would you say that it is possible that we've gone to the other extreme here? No, I think the nuclear family is an abomination. It's a very adaptive device for immigration, emigration from the country to the city, and it serves the purposes of large industry and powerful states very well because the nuclear family is so helpless in the face of society. 
And if you can isolate a young father and mother and small children away from everybody else, from their kin, from neighbors and friends, then they are very helpless. And I say that on the basis of studying societies all over the world and the kind of support that a larger kin group and a larger community gives to the individual. Since 1940, we've probably had more evil in the world than practically, well, in, in, in numbers terms. And more anyway. good. And more good, yes. But somewhere we must account for this evil, for Vietnam, for the Second World War, for the sort of race hatred that exists in Australia. Well, now, when America. you say we must account for it... Uh, it's a product of human beings, we, Well, it it's a product of human beings, human institutions that have been developing for 100,000 years, human groups interacting with environmental change and making inventions, and then not foreseeing the effect of the invention on the society. The way English speakers use the term human nature has very little to do with anything. I mean, they simply invoke human nature to support any prejudice they happen to have at the moment. So people say, well, you believe in heredity, don't you? Identical twins are alike, aren't they? Doesn't that prove whatever they want to prove, you know, that uh, white people are superior to black people or black people are superior to white people or that people will always fight or will always have aggression or any of these things. Now, what one can say scientifically, what we can say is that human beings are capable of an incredible range of behavior, and we probably haven't tapped a tenth of it. You're constantly hearing the lay statement, well, that's only human nature, or you can't change human nature. It's human nature to behave in whatever particular way the society in which we live expects people to behave. And what we've found is many scientists echoing precisely these statements, attempting to demonstrate, if you like, that there is a biological base for what people regard as only human nature. Now, I would argue, in fact, that what is human nature, in the sense that lay people understand it, is primarily determined by the social situation, by environment, by the sort of society in which people live. And if we find particular assumptions being made about what is human nature, that people are inevitably greedy or inevitably motivated by territorial demands or sexual demands or whatever, and these are the common cause of human action, if we find these statements being made again and again and again, I think we need to look very clearly at the sorts of political purposes which these statements are actually filling. That is, they attempt to justify an existing social and political structure by claiming that it is inevitably biological in human beings' biological nature. Well, that was Professor Stephen Rhodes from the Open University speaking way back over 50 years ago. And part of the 100th anniversary of Radio 2, or now called Radio National. We were talking then, Malcolm Long, who's with me and was eventually the Deputy Managing Director of the ABC. We we're talking about RAM coming together. Now, the thing that amazed me with heads of department, you mentioned Richard Connolly before, and we had from the highest to the lowest, the the juniors, the broadcasters, all very smart. Some of them had written books. You had written books, <laughs> which is rather interesting. And they all came together, sometimes with a bottle of wine, in a small church at the end of Forbes Street. And there were no hierarchies, apparently. No, none at all. Everyone was looking at this predicament of radio, and no one had preeminence in ideas or solutions. So we all just mucked in 
and made it up as we went. And how did it develop? Well, after Sunday Night Radio 2, Peter Fry and I in the Radio Special Projects Department, which became rather notorious after this period, which was run by Alan Ashbolt, a leading figure for change and for some time rattling the chain in the ABC, we decided we would put up a proposal to run a four-night, 45-minute program in the late evening called Late Line. It was the first use of that name, which was later used on television. But the first Late Line was a very freewheeling, intellectually, hopefully stimulating, sometimes chaotic, but always, I think, looking for people with new ideas who could articulate them and often getting them together to talk to each other, not just in Australia, but around the world. And to do that, we had the ability at that stage, just recently delivered, of using satellite technology. Yes, people had just discovered it. And when you went to inquire something so delicate as what was the budget, (laughs) no one seemed to know, so you just carried on. Well, it was a much more efficient way of linking people around the world than the old telephone linkages which were there. And it allowed for really good quality discussions at length at a reasonable price. Most of the speakers who only in the past had really been heard on Australian radio, either in something that had been prepackaged by the BBC or read about their ideas in Australian newspapers, and only a few of those, but most of these people were distant figures. We brought them onto radio every night. And just a list of some of the people, A.L. Rouse, Robert Bolt, Norman Potteretz, Roy Jenkins, Stephen Spender, Arnold Toynbee, Margaret Atwood, Senator Eugene McCarthy, Gunnar Myrdal, Arthur C. Clarke, Noam Chomsky, R.D. Lang and David Cooper. Now, they're figures from the past, but I think most people who have been around for a while would recognise a lot of those. There's very influential global figures who were able to, and quite keen to come on Australian radio late at night to talk to each other and to us who believed we were well-educated and uh, had enough chutzpah to actually talk to them at length in a way that I think they quite enjoyed. And the audiences showed that they enjoyed it too. They certainly did. And how was this received by the managers? Did they recognise that this was a great success? Some of the senior managers in the ABC at the time were fairly shocked by the ability of these groups in our programmes to just let these people talk without balance in the old sense, without too much interruption and for half an hour or longer. But you've got to remember, we were doing this in the last days of the 23 years of coalition conservative rule in Australia. Very few countries have had that length of single government, which in our case was a sometimes very successful government that did good things, But it was a single view of the world. It washed through the ABC over 23 years, determined the commissioners who ran the ABC, determined, therefore, the sensitivities of the senior staff of the ABC, and before RAM, really had a strong view within the specialist departments. Just the view of the world was the Menzian view, and that was a different view to the one that we found that audiences were up for in the beginning of the 70s. I joined the ABC in 1972, and of course that was the year. At the end of the year, in December, came the Whitlam government, as you said, after all those years of McMahon and uh, Menzies and so on. 
And I was there in the ABC hired for two reasons, Apollo 16 and Apollo 17, the last flights. And the sorts of things that you mentioned in terms of satellites and connection, well, we were up to that. One thing we weren't up to, as you'll hear in a minute, <laughs> was the use of talkback, because even though commercials were doing talkback, Radio 2 wasn't. And I had an army field telephone to interview someone after we had done the voice of Apollo. But let's hear Peter Pockley as he describes how we dealt with this extraordinary experience of human beings being in almost outer space, but as far as the moon, and broadcasting it live. For nearly four years, an electronic umbilical cord joined me to the Apollo astronauts. Our umbilical was a simple voice circuit, a pair of wires, if you like, with the occasional communication satellite joining the loose ends. It brought together the voices of the astronauts, put them through the placenta of mission control in Houston, Texas, and carried the combined sounds to me and my colleagues in the ABC Science Unit here in Sydney. Unlike the biological situation, though, our umbilical flowed in one direction only, from them to us. Frustratingly, we had absolutely no communication the other way. We were simply eavesdroppers on a stream of voices, some earthbound, some spacebound. These were carried on a private line which Mission Control kept open continuously to the tracking stations throughout the world. The line was dubbed, rather grandly, the Voice of Apollo. I learned of its existence after struggling to present adequate broadcasts of the first manned flights of the Apollo project. Apollo 7, which orbited the Earth for 11 days in October 68, and Apollo 8, which took three men around the moon on Christmas Eve of the same year. For those broadcasts, we patched together whatever actuality material we could understand from the wheeze and whine of shortwave broadcasts. For me, and I'm sure for our listeners, we were just mildly interested observers of the space game from a distance and in disconnected snatches. We did try to improve things by getting our correspondents in the US to lift the sound from American broadcasts and feed that to us by the compact cable at no small expense to the ABC, but this was very cumbersome to set up and could not provide the authoritative and locally relevant information needed for Australian audiences. But all that changed for our broadcasts of Apollo 9, which in March 69 went into orbit around the moon and Tess flew the lunar lander, and Apollo 10 in May, the exciting dress rehearsal, when the lunar lander Snoopy swooped down to and around the grey mountains of the moon. For these broadcasts, we obtained an exclusive phone tap of the voice of Apollo as it passed through Sydney to the tracking station near Canberra. And because it didn't cost us a cent, the pontiffs of the ninth floor were in no pickle about our virtual full-time occupation of a studio. We linked the voice of Apollo into what we, in turn, rather grandly called the ABC's Apollo Studio, and at least one of us listened to it without break throughout every day and often throughout the night. When we didn't broadcast live the predictable key events, we recorded every other moment, including large chunks of hash, as the jargon had it, in case something vital was missed. Oh, this, incidentally, was how we managed to beat probably every radio station in the world with broadcasts within minutes of the explosion on Apollo 13 during a dull period of transit to the moon in April 70 and how radio stayed for days with the heart-stopping story of bringing Jim Lovell, Jack Swigert and Fred Hayes safely back to Earth. Well, the audio quality of the voice of Apollo was just electrifying. And as we relayed in our broadcast, the clipped voices of the astronauts and controllers, seldom betraying any strain or emotion, it riveted us and our growing audiences. It was a true radio event, and for later missions, of course, also a television event, but I like to think that radio was king, 
because we not only packed our broadcast with live drama and information, but the very sounds of voices from space were the seeds of countless millions of imaginary journeys to the moon by the eavesdroppers. This was all good training for the big one, for Apollo 11, of course, when I was to lead the most extensive and complex live broadcasts ever staged by ABC Radio for days at a stretch. I was hooked up to two sets of headphones and had every conceivable backup for variety and safety in case the voice of Apollo dropped out, including the ABC's first and probably only live open telephone line for talkback, without the regulation seven-second delay to protect sensitive ears from expletives or profanities. Okay, Houston, I'm on the porch. Roger, Neil. And we're getting a picture on the TV. You got a good picture, huh? Uh, there's a great deal of contrast in it, and uh, currently it's upside down on our monitor, but we can make out a fair amount of detail. Well, with me is Malcolm Long, who spent a long time in the ABC, ended up as Deputy Managing Director, and some of the things that Radio 2 represented there, Peter Pockley going not just on Radio 2, but anyone who wanted to join. Radio 2 was a kind of main Amazon river. (laughs) Maybe that's the wrong example, Amazon, but a huge river of tributaries going everywhere and happily working with all sorts of broadcasters around the ABC. Yes, I think that period, mostly the changes we've talked about happening on Radio 2, as it then was, it tended to seep out more broadly. This slightly larrikin way of approaching intellectually serious broadcasting and even popular, but stories and substance in stories which hadn't necessarily been so much in the ABC or anywhere before, it began to leak out and it had an impact over time because later when I became director of ABC Radio, one could see the new spirit happening in local radio, in regional radio, and it wasn't about politics, it wasn't about bias, which a lot of our critics said it was. It was about the freedom to talk to audiences who wanted substance, whether it was popular radio or on serious specialist radio, wanted substance and personality. And of course, one of the things that you brought to this first, Robin, was strong personality, strong authority of knowledge, subject matter, and strong ability to make programs zing with music and other forms of audio enhancements. And that kind of attractive but substantive radio really became then the trademark of the three networks of the ABC in the 80s. And they did very well and were very successful. But with all those changes, here we are after 100 years. How do you see the future of a station like this? Well, I think it'll be challenging. But then, in a sense, it always was. I think the changes that have occurred that we've talked about were challenging when they happened. I think that those kind of difficult questions about how to deliver to people audio material which is meaningful for them and which they can get when they want it and how they want it is going to be a continuing challenge. But I think Radio National, one of its strengths is the content and the fact that so much podcasting these days around the world is looking at what's called the long tail of content, which means that people once looked for something that everyone would like, and now they can actually make a success and often money of looking at a material that appeals to particular interest groups in the long tail, then the long tail is a future for content on Radio National. Now, whether at the end of the day that continues to be a linear stream that people have to make an appointment to listen to, 
or whether more of what happens now is they listen to your program as a podcast, which is available on an ABC Listen app, and they listen to all their programs that way, we're yet to see. But I frankly think one of the safest places to be in terms of the future of broadcasting to a broad range of people is in an organisation that still takes seriously substance, depth, the expertise of good producers and presenters, and most of all, takes their listeners seriously for the long haul. Thank you for coming in, and I hope you're still listening. Thanks, Robin. This is the ABC from 3AR Melbourne Regional and Shortwave Stations, 